Welcome to the Hot Stove Society Show on Cairo Radio. Uh, here we are, downtown Seattle, once again. Happy to have you here. Uh, we are in the beautiful Hotel Andra uh, in our kitchen studios here at Hot Stove, sponsored by KitchenAid and Booze Blocks and all the good things that make a great kitchen. Uh, Terry, once again, not feeling well. He made it all the way back from France, but not feeling well, so he's going to take the week off. Hopefully, he'll be back next week. So my daughter Loretta, since it's Father's Day, is going to sit in in his spot. Are you excited? You've allowed me here this in his stead. Two weeks ago, you did this, and you liked it, right? I did. It was fun. Yeah, yeah I'm good. happy to be back. Good. How's my grandson, Hercules? He is doing great. Uh-huh. He was less cute at 5 a.m., but other than that, it's awesome. Good. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, I saw a video of him yesterday. with a, All he needed was a stick and a little... Uh, cowboy handkerchief and he would have been on his way i know we, we had him in his first pair of shorts yesterday because the hot weather is maybe finally coming and mm-hmm. uh he was rocking it he was rocking it and then he was he was heading down the steps and waving goodbye and yeah. on his way to the park my name is tom douglas uh, i'm chef owner of a couple of places here around seattle including the hot stove society lola dahlia uh, Dahlia Bakery, I mean, uh, Serious Pie, and of course, Seatown Restaurant in the north end of the Pike Place Market area, uh, where we do oysters and fish and chips and chowder and all sorts of fun on an everyday fare. Uh, we have a large show for you, uh, two hours. Uh, we are here every week, uh, almost 22 years now, I believe we've been on the air, so we're thrilled about that. And uh, lots of delicious uh, topics today, including peak of the season, young delicate greens uh, which calls for a little light vinaigrette and i think that's something that people get confused about uh, especially with these spring greens is that they want to put too heavy of a dressing on it they can't have a ranch dressing you can't have a thousand island dressing it just crushes the greens so let's talk about that uh, later in the show a perfect father's day menu uh my father's long been long been gone uh but i know he was a prime rib man and if i was at home making father's day dinner for him uh, I would probably do just that. There's classic. no sense fighting a classic. Loretta's going to tell us today what she would make for me compared to what she might make for her new father in her life, her husband. So I think they're probably two different things. We're going to find out. Two different generations, I'll say, uh, for Father's Day. Danica Noble was here last week and was telling us about what's the, the current update in Ukraine trying to feed all the refugees, millions and millions of refugees, two or three meals a day. I mean, that's, when you think about it, I believe there's five million refugees now, times three, that's 15 million meals a day alone, just for the refugees. Um, she's going to tell us how that process is working with World Central Kitchen, uh, Jose Andres' uh, thing. Uh, thing. Unbelievable Just project. Unbelievable yeah. project. Cat Lou is going to uh, join us to talk about her new book called Modern Asian Baking at Home for uh, two segments today. I'm really interested in this book because I love the whole mochi thing, which uh, this particular book has lots of uh, mochi recipes in it, but it's also how she crowdsourced uh, her information. And it's how, such a modern book in that way. I know. I, think, so. I mean, it's modern Asian baking in a lot of ways, but the whole way of putting the, a book together. Yeah was very uh, modern. Top 10 reasons to roast a pork shoulder. Michael, who's sitting in for Pamela today, who's under the weather, uh, is going to uh, tell us what his favorite roasted pork shoulder recipe is. Because you're, you're kind of a active home cook, aren't you? I would say so, yeah. yeah. I'm a uh, you know, trained culinarian. 
and working here in this company has uh, definitely opened my eyes to a lot more avenues of preparations and uh, flavors. So right. Uh, your your day to day job is graphics and photography and and social uh, media social yeah. media. But uh, you're going to jump in here today because you used to work right in this kitchen here at the hot stove. I sure did. I got my start here at the Hot Stove Society uh, before the pandemic started, mm-hmm. and um, I've never lost my love for it. Uh, and of course, we're going to finish up the show with some Father's Day tasty trivia questions from our friend Becky Guzak. Uh, if I know Becky, she's probably left the hardest questions for last, so I might go first today. No. Just to throw, <laughs> just to throw a wrench into things. Uh, but first, let's talk about our taste of the week. Uh, have you had anything most delicious this week? Uh, you know, we did a little uh, taste off this week of Copper River Sockeye and Copper River King uh-huh. from uh, Wild Salmon Fish Market, um, and it was super interesting. They were very different. They look completely different. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think the king won for us, but I think we also had a perfect piece. Sometimes I like that that sockeye is a little firmer, but uh, it was the perfect piece of Copper River King salmon. Isn't that so. awesome? That is such an interesting uh, thing because so far for for me this season, I've liked the sockeye better because it's firmer texture the king has been so fatty that it becomes a little bit flabby yeah and uh so i've really enjoyed the bite i love of both the, the i just was i was very surprised by just how different they uh-huh. were we had the sockeye again last night and i mean for the price i think it's unbelievable right so. uh when i was at shoreline central market uh yesterday i'm i'm cooking right now for 40 people uh for a, an event on saturday for camp Corey, which is that amazing camp started by paul newman yeah. and his group uh up in the north end and my friend sue colburn is a board member there and talked me into donating a dinner for 40 out there at her house on bainbridge but i was uh, you know grocery shopping for it yesterday and it, it was amazing the effort they put in to sell me white copper river king salmon <laughs> how rare it was blah 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 and people still fall for that in, in a funny way thinking that that is somehow more pristine or more delicious and it's just different right it's a chromosome issue it's just a different fish they all come from the same batch of fish and going up the same river and it's just a chromosome issue and but people out there they i don't actually think i've ever had the white yeah sometimes they call it ivory white king you know whatever but anyway that was that was interesting Uh, i will say that um i was out getting fresh crab meat and you know it's been a great crab season uh, and I was uh, one of the things on the menu for this dinner is crab cake. So I bought some fresh Dungeness crab meat. Wow, it is spectacular right now. We do not eat enough Dungeness. I yeah, feel. at your it, house, it is pristine. Yeah. I wonder how uh, Hercules would like picking apart a crab. He'd probably get a shell caught in his throat and <laughs> scream at me or something. But um, it is. Uh, it, it was spectacular. It made beautiful crab cakes. I just did a little mayo and tarragon and some of our shallot mustard and no other no other filling in there just lemon zest lemon juice some eggs and then i just dusted them in panko on the outside no breading on the inside this time and so we'll we'll see how they are because i'm gonna i'm gonna pan fry them and whole butter and save me one yeah (laughs) you have to come to bainbridge (laughs) as a matter of fact there's a couple i know you're coming to my house for dinner tonight uh there's a couple in the are there okay i'm gonna steal those need to be uh need to be cooked and eaten it's the farmer's markets time and finally it's starting to warm up even despite the sun not really being out a whole lot it's still the the thermal units are starting to kick in 
and we're starting to see some local greens. But they are dainty. They're sweet this time of year because of the coolness. We're going to look forward to making a little salad dressing for them when we come back here on the Hot Stove Society Show, 97.3 FM. And we're back to the Hot Stove Society Show. Loretta Douglas sitting in for Chef Terry, the chef in the chapeau. Um, my name is Tom Douglas, and I'm happy to be your host today. We have uh, a few of our regulars watching us on YouTube, which you can also if you go to... Michael, how do they get there? Uh, so just go to YouTube and then uh, type in Tom Douglas. You'd probably be able to find it quickest that way, but uh, you can also do www.youtube.com slash Tom Douglas and company. All one word, lowercase. And look for Hot Stove Society Radio, right? Uh, yeah. yeah. You'll see it. It'll pop up right It'll there. pop up for you? Okay. Make sure to like and subscribe. It's free, wow. for God's sake. It's free. Marketing manager over here. <laughs> Spring Greens. Now, this is a time where people uh, often want to do salads. I love them as a quick saute. Like if I'm making a, a, a quick little baby spinach or something the first of the season, it's good. I mean, I love a good spring green salad, but they collapse really easily. And so in a quick saute, I just collapse them normally. Mm-hmm. And I just I like them warm with olive oil and lemon and pine nuts and currants or little things like that. But it takes so many to make enough. I know. You'd think you have this bounty. I pick it out of my garden and I'm like, man, I'm going to feed seven people with yeah. this. And yeah. Not, not the case. One and a half people later. But on a regular salad, if you don't cook them up or if you don't give them a light wilt, uh, you can go much further with them. Do you have a favorite dressing? You know, I think I make vinaigrette to this day the way that you taught me. It was one of my... Well, maybe you should tell folks and I can tell you if you, <laughs> if you learned it correctly. It was one of my kind of regular jobs when we were making dinner when I was growing up because my mother hates making salad dressing. And so I think you taught me and then I took it on. But I still stick pretty close to um, olive oil. I like uh, either the shallot mustard or the tarragon mustard, a little bit of that, a little bit of honey. If I have some fresh herbs chop up those if mm-hmm. i have a shallot i will add mince up a shallot a little bit of a shallot. little bit yeah. not a lot uh and then um a, a vinegar of your choice sometimes balsamic sometimes i do red wine sometimes yeah. this time of year i would say stick to the light the champagne light vinegar. vinegars yeah for sure uh and just make a little bit lighter and brighter salad dressing the other thing i like to do when i'm doing uh baby greens at this point is I like to send the dressing on the side to the table because it literally takes a minute. And, you know, uh, when Kenji Lopez-Alt was on, he explained that I always had blamed the lemon juice for kind of cooking the greens uh, really quickly. He says on something like that that it's the olive oil that dampens and crushes the greens because it's such a heavy mm-hmm. viscosity on top of the light greens. They just so can't stand up it's to so it. simple to just send a little ramekin of salad dressing on the side to the table and, and now, I mean, after eating in Vietnamese restaurants now for the last 30-plus years, uh, I never serve a little salad like that. To me, part of the greens is basil leaves, Thai basil yeah. leaves, tarragon leaves, mint leaves, whole parsley leaves. That is at least 20% of my salad. And then I put in the, the mizuna uh, greens, the pea vines, the mustard greens, the amaranth, the red leaf amaranth, the uh, sour sorrel, Little things like that, spinach, if you want some bulk, 
Um, yeah, treat your herbs as a green as in a your green. salads, yeah. for sure. So that, that, to me, is the better way to go for this time of year. There's some greens out there that uh, I would suggest that you look for at the farmer's market because that's where you're not, you're not going to find them at a grocery store. Mm-hmm. But the katsuma and the uh, bikana are both fun tasty greens that you don't see in a grocery store but it's fun when you're shopping at a i just found some really beautiful little micro pea shoots at um our farmer's market in magnolia Uh and i love to throw those in i love to throw them in too but they have zero bulk i mean those 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 but they're more like an herb when yeah but they're crisp and yeah i treat Uh them like i would basil or mint or something like that to uh, when I'm sautéing greens like that, like the I use, buy a big bag of baby spinach or whatever that is, you know, it reminds me of how hard it is to to harvest that oh. stuff. If you drive through the San Joaquin Valley of California, I'm not sure how they do it up here because a lot of these babies are local now, but they literally have tractors that have wings on them, and people lay down on their belly on the wings. They're in like a little bit of a harness. And they are literally laying down with their head facing the ground with their scissors in their hands and harvesting, like, you know, picking strawberries, harvesting the, the, the baby greens so that it's, it's um, ergonomically much better for them than to bend over like they do asparagus, right? That is the bending crazy. over yeah. and... Uh, yeah, and then you get your bag of spinach. When I see a big spinach. bag of spinach like that, I, I realize how hard people Cooks work. Cooks down to one portion. Yeah, yeah, just to pick that stuff. So... Uh, Biggest mistake I think people make when they're doing a little bit of a quick saute on greens, too much garlic. Yeah. People are still bitten by the Emerald Lagasse, more is better garlic or more is better chili or more is better spice. Um, I prefer to actually like crisp my garlic and olive oil separately and then... I add it at the end, you know, a little crispy garlic over top because that way I can really control how much I'm getting in there. Right, and it's it's toasty good, and it adds a crunch, just like in chili crunch, but uh, then you're sautéing in garlic oil, right, which is... I do them separately. You entirely. don't use the oil use, that you crisp in the garlic in, the sautéing? Sometimes, but like you said, it gets too much too, too really too quick, garlicky. so sometimes I just keep it separate, or I'll keep a little bit just in my uh-huh. fridge. So when I get my pan going, you have to have a very large pan, you have to have a good heat you get it going you don't get it to smoke but you get it hot and you pop your greens in and i pull the pan off the heat right Mm. at that point because you can't cool the pan down and the greens are just going to want to you can always put the pan back on (coughs) pardon me but um you you're going to want to get your greens turned really quickly just get a wilt get the pan off the heat they're going to continue to cook all the way to the dinner table You'll see at the bottom of the, the bowl, like your spinach service bowl, by the time you get to the dinner table, if you've done it incorrectly, if you've left too much heat on the greens, it's going to be a pool of spinach water at the bottom, right? Yeah. And the whole idea is that you're just doing a light wilt and that the spinach leaves retain most of their moisture and they're just kind of dressed in your garlic and your mm-hmm. oil and, and a squeeze of lemon. So uh, it is, it's a tough thing to master. It seems so simple, but almost everyone overcooks them. The other green that I love to cook that I think people think needs more time is chard, like ruby chard. Mm-hmm. So when I take the nice leaves off the ruby stems, I'll cook the stems first, and I'll just saute them until they're tender, pull them out, and then I'll just quick sear the ruby chard leaves. And uh, it's very different, right? Mm-hmm. And the other thing is when you're doing that, don't do the whole leaf, Yeah. right? 
because you end up with this stringy mess yeah, trying to eat at the dinner table. When you you're gotta, eating it and it's you know down to your chest because it's, yeah, it's really gross. Yeah, and then it gets caught in your teeth, and then people don't want to have dinner with you anymore. <laughs> I would say if you're going to plant greens, try and plant them in a, a, a pot that's higher up so you're not bent over trying to scissor cut these things yeah. all the time. And they will grow back. During a spring like we've been yeah. having, They'll uh, once you take your first flush, they generally will grow back. It's in, not till the I hot. I trim of- around the outer you know, leaves as soon as they're ready. I, if I have 15 plants, I'll just take the outer leaves off each mm-hmm. of them and then they come back and yeah. keep going but you'll see as soon as we hit that 80 or 90 degree mark they'll start to bolt and you'll be done yeah. and you plant them again in the fall is the way to go all right father's day menus coming up what are you going to make for your dad are you telling me that you're not going to make something for your dad what are you saying uh, right now about your love and care for your treasured parent it's tom and loretta in the hot stove society kitchen right here on cairo radio 97 3 fm All right, it's time for Father's Day. Happy Father's Day to all the dads out there. This is the Hot Stove Society Show coming to you from downtown Seattle, 4th and Virginia. Right here in Midtown, I would call this area. It's Father's Day. I'm going to ask Michael, is your father still alive? No, he's no longer with us, unfortunately. Yeah, mine too. Uh, What would you be making for your father today if he was with Uh, us? Well, my father was pretty easy and preferred a uh, combination pizza. Uh, (laughs) So I would be Not ordering where I that. I thought you were going with that. <laughs> uh, and then uh, combination of what? Uh, oh, Hawaiian so you know, like and pepperoni. Or? Well, actually, he did love a Hawaiian pizza, the ham and pineapple. Uh-huh. But you know, the traditional uh, combo: pepperoni, sausage, uh, peppers, onions, olives, mushrooms. Uh-huh. Um, and he would pair that with a fine vintage of. 7-Eleven's finest Slurpees. <laughs> he wow, was a, no, a non-drinker. Amazing. Yeah, can't uh, imagine. Uh, how you grew up to be such a <laughs> gourmand? A uh, actually, I didn't. It took it took quite a while, um, and it took my parents not being interested in food very much at all. My mother never really used any spices when she cooked, and pepper is too spicy for her. So, mm-hmm. growing up with a bland palate, everybody would always introduce me to new things, and some of those things stuck, some of them didn't. Um, but you know, kind of opened my eyes more to what is actually out there uh-huh. after leaving home and. Um, wow, there's a lot. And now I like fish and cheese, and those are two big items that I never used to like. Interesting. Would you use one of the serious pie pizza crusts to make a combination pizza for him, or what, what would you do today, a bobbly? No, I would a definitely bobbly. use one of our crusts because, I'm sorry, but the serious pie pizza has ruined me for other pizzas. <laughs> I was recently in New York, and I really wanted pizza, but I didn't want New York pizza. I wanted serious pie pizza. Uh, <laughs> Uh, my dad is, uh, he wasn't not hard to please, uh, for him, it was meat or all you can eat buffet was his favorite meal, but, uh, he was a traveling salesman and he had a dish that my mother used to make for him that I detested. It was called chili noodles. And, uh, he had it, uh, it was very popular, I think in Cincinnati and yeah. it was kind of a tomatoey, almost brothy kind of chili. That was then put over with spaghetti, and it was gross. And he loved it. That is gnarly. It's a a variation (laughs) on chili mac or something. You know, people eat. Yeah, I mean, we had the we always had the green can of craft grated cheese, and so if you put enough of that on it, maybe it comes out okay. But the chili noodles, 
I always dreaded the day that uh, she would make that for him. But if I was cooking for him, I would definitely do a rib roast. Or now, you know, cowboy steaks are very popular now. So to me, what I like about cowboy steaks compared to say rib roast is that it's the same cut, right? It's just cut from the rib roast, and generally the the long bone is left on the rib. But it's the same thing. It's a rib steak on a bone, double thick, but you get char on both sides of that steak and. To me, yeah, that's, that's where the, the flavor is, that's right? That's the thing that I don't love about prime rib. It's yeah. like you get no crust. You get no edge on it. Yeah, you unless know? you get the end piece. Yeah. yeah. He would have that, and he would have mashed potatoes, and um, I don't know. I'd probably make him some we of have his glass sweet of onion gravy. Uh, he was a Mogan David Mogan man. David. Uh, I think Manischewitz bought Mogan David, but at his wake, you know, uh, we had spaghetti and meatballs, because he would only drink wine when my mom would make spaghetti and meatballs. I love that. And then he would have a, a, a two to four ounce glass of Mogan David, which we all had at his wake. Grape juice. Well, it tastes like Welch's grape yeah. jelly. Yeah. It's, it, and it literally is just unset grape jelly with alcohol in it. And that was his drink uh, for the maybe four months before she would make spaghetti again. So those are, the, <laughs> those are the kind of things that when you're thinking about your parents, you want to give them what they most love. So what do you suppose, uh, Michael, that my daughter would make for me on Father's Day? Mopoke dadu. Mopoke dadu. <laughs> um, well, I would think that she would make you happy. Something like you would make for your father: yeah. a rib roast or uh, probably a steak. Let's hear. Nice, a Let's nice hear. sear. I think the heart. The, I think I would give you the gift of making it for yourself. <laughs> um, no, I think the hard part is is you are like the grill guy in our family and i'm not super comfortable on a grill but we gotta fix that i know but your most of your favorite things come off of a grill Mm -hmm. so i think that's where the rub is for me um where i would get you know apprehensive about doing a prime rib or a cowboy steak or something like that that i know that you would like you know it's people tell me all the time in a funny way that they're like intimidated to cook for me because they knew I grew up with good food or things like that and I never really understand it except for when I go to make meat for you uh-huh. because it's just your thing I feel well so, plus I, you know I love the wood grill but it's not necessarily steak I like salmon on the grill I like yeah, a whole anything. duck on the grill anything so, on the grill so yeah I'd probably do I feel pretty comfortable with salmon so I would probably do a whole side of salmon mm-hmm. and um Maybe some wilted fresh greens. <laughs> and you know I love my greens. I know. Yeah. Broccoli, you love broccoli. Um, and then maybe a potato. Yeah, that sounds good. So when is that? Sunday night? Not Sunday. Okay. <laughs> I got plans. And so how does that differ than what you would make for your husband? Because I think that seems similar to what you would make for Ben Chamon. Ben loves a pork chop. So my go-to kind of special occasion food for Ben is pork chop. And we used to get those Kessler smoked pork chops from Bavarian Meats for all of our, you know, special occasion mm-hmm. meals. And he loves them. Those are harder to find now that Bavarian's not in the market anymore. But um, just a full, big, bone-in pork chop. He loves sweet potatoes, so I probably do sweet potatoes and then... Uh, I couldn't do it now because they're out of season. In winter, br- always Brussels sprouts. 
uh, now probably broccoli. Yeah, we had to suffer through six months of Brussels sprouts. Anything but for me right now. So. Oh, yeah. I mean, I like them fine, but God, there's asparagus and there's everything's yeah. coming on. So He loves them. So sometimes even in the summer, he's like, can we just have Brussels sprouts? I say, no, you have to wait for winter. <laughs> Not even on Father's Day. Not even on Father's Day. Uh, and then, of course, Hercules loves him a, a bone, meat on a bone. He loves to... The first one I ever saw him eat was the veal chop at Christmas. Yeah. He would totally take the pork, you know, the bone out of a pork chop. His absolute favorite food is gnocchi. So, um, you know, I'm sure if he was cooking for his dad, he'd be like, well, we should probably have gnocchi. But but he's not. He likes sausage too, right? Yeah. If you've got, if you're watching on YouTube right now, why don't you text us what you're going to make for your father for Father's Day? I'd be curious about that because... Um, Terry Benson is doing a porterhouse. Uh, Annie, over here, uh, would you come over here for a second and tell us, uh, uh, I don't know if you actually had Father's Day in Cambodia, Vietnam, China, your home, but you have it now. What are you going to make for your husband? Annie uh, is the, one of the chefs here at the hot stove and uh, has a, a more diverse background than many of us, uh, especially from Asia. We have no Asia in me that I know of. Uh, <laughs> I love cooking. I love cooking that style of food, though. So if uh, what are you going to make for your husband, who's Hungarian? Uh, mm. What are you going to make for him for Father's Day? Does he have a favorite? Um, he likes anything, you know, like Midwest food, mac and cheese, uh, pot pie, those kind of things. Mm-hmm. But I do have to work the Father's Day bacon event here this Sunday. So he gets to come to that event, and then I don't have to cook. <laughs> that is a really good solution, I know. Annie. <laughs> What about for dinner, you lazy butt? I'm pretty sure he'll be hungry from the bacon. He'll be full, you mean? Yeah. Yeah, so oh, I, I don't think he will be. I think he'll be expecting a second opportunity to have your cookie. I mean, we're trying to cut the calories, you know, one meal a day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Intermittent fasting, just yeah. all day. That is so sad. I'm, just, I'm sad for him and for your young son. <laughs> I mean, you know, he doesn't eat much. He gets to eat my fennel. That's all he gets. That's all he gets. Well, <laughs> there's so many delicious things uh, that you could make for your father. Uh, the thing that I think people forget about is when, when they're trying to do something a la minute, they get nervous, right? And so that's why things that are slow and low and slow, like braised items, like to me, a perfect Father's Day dinner for somebody who's a little nervous is something like a beef short rib where you it's very difficult to overcook them you can start earlier in the day and then just reheat it you simply put you know some roasted potatoes in the pan the beef short ribs a little bit of uh, asparagus and you've got dinner but um, I, i do find that at the last minute when people are trying to get that steak rare or medium rare or medium that they they tighten up or if they're trying to do the pork chop that you're talking about you so easy to overcook pork chop Mm -hmm. And you end up with that dry, mealy, white center meat of the of the pork loin, and it's gross. Uh, you know, so th- low and slow, oven-roasted ribs if you don't have a charcoal grill. Uh, just little things that to make your life easier and that you can't mess up. I think we're talking uh, pork shoulder later in the show. That's a great, another great option uh, that you could do yeah, we'll tell you a how myriad to make, of things. We'll tell you how to make that or make pork shoulder tacos yeah. or all the different things you can do with that. Most meat. dads will be happy just to be cooked for. So don't <laughs> Absolutely. get stressed. 
All right. Up next, we're going to get an update on the Ukraine refugee situation and World Central Kitchen and what we're going to do to try and continue to make sure people don't forget about Ukraine. I, I don't see it in the top of the news anymore, but things are tough over there. And so we're we're still doing benefits and we're trying to send money to World Central Kitchen. When we come back on Cairo Radio, it's the Hot Stove Society Show, 97.3 FM. All right, we're back here in the Hot Stove Society kitchen on Cairo. I'm Tom Douglas. Loretta Douglas. And Loretta is sitting in for the chef in the chapeau who's under the weather. We're happy to have him back from France. And uh, we have a, a large show to continue with. We're going to catch up on the Ukraine refugee situation. I'm determined to kind of keep this in the news a bit because I know as a country we have a short attention span. Yep. And I was... Um, Surprised at how much time CNN had given it when it first happened, and it was 24-7. And I've watched it over the last 120 days that we, they, they've been at it, just get whittled away to almost anything with all the hearings in Washington and all the things going on around the country with high gas prices. Uh, all of that stuff matters. I'm, I'm not for one second saying they don't matter, but World War Three matters too. Yeah. And what we think of as high gas prices or as things that are more important, um, believe me, if you look back at the cost of the Second World War, and this is, would only be worse if we don't pay attention to what's going on and, and try to make sure that um, we don't empower the, the regimes that are responsible for this war, that um, we're going to pay for it in the end, and high gas prices will be the last of our problems. So, Absolutely. Uh, and and I'm, not, I'm not preaching. I'm just saying how I kind of look at it. It's like uh, this is important that we stay at this. And, and I know feeding we're people a, is our business. And, well, that happens you know, to be what I we can like do. This is a place that we can make a difference, that anybody can make a difference. Yeah, exactly, because I'm not the one that's going to get on the ground over there with an AK-47 and start you know fighting on the ground unless that's what it comes to uh, i know when the world trade center was bombed um while i had a difference of opinion of who our president of what our president did i was ready to sign up you know that's 20 some years ago but i was ready to sign up to do whatever i could do uh, to defend our country i i think people are surprised that i tend to be a left-leaning liberal but i'm also country first in a funny way i think what did we say? We had a conversation, I thought, where I, I said defense of our country was mm-hmm. the number one priority for me. Um, and you were, I think you were surprised at that. Yeah. It, was, it was high on my list. So we had Danica Noble in here. Uh, she had worked in Ukraine before everyone was forced out. All the uh, Americans were kind of forced out and uh, had friends there, had set up my friends, Jamie and Sue, to go over and kind of help with the refugee crisis. They kind of hung out on the Romanian-Ukrainian border. They're now back. Uh, they're heading back again heading in a back month. Heading back again soon, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but uh, so we're just trying to figure out what's going on, what we can do to help. Uh, for me, it's World Central Kitchen, and hopefully for our listeners, you'll take time out to maybe uh, research World Central Kitchen, maybe make a donation, do what you can do to help feed the f- over 5 million refugees a day that, that need food and shelter. Absolutely. And clothing. Okay, let's listen in to Danica. We missed kind of talking a little bit about the nutrition value of some of the food that's going on uh, because it doesn't help for us to send a bunch of potato chips and soda pop to Ukraine, right? So uh, the things that we are sending need to be uh, have a, a, a value to them. So what does that look like? 
Well, I think um, you'll see a lot of headlines now about uh, uh, either existing or pending food crisis, and people are linking it to this war in Ukraine. And so uh, where that is coming from is Ukraine, known as the bed brass, the bread basket of Europe. And we talked a little bit about how um, the first time I was on the show about how uh, when you give somebody, instead of a a bouquet of flowers in Ukraine, it's often a bouquet of wheat. And um, you'll see that at memorials and monuments as well. So they, along with Russia, produce almost a third of the world's wheat. And right now, that wheat is either subject to sanctions on Russia's part or subject to a Russian blockade for Ukrainian grain. And so there are something like 20 million tons of grain in silos in Odessa, and it can't get out, and it's, it hasn't been able to get out since February. And because of where the Black Sea is and the shipping lines, a lot of that grain is destined for the developing world and in Africa, and so the most vulnerable um, people who are maybe facing the immediate shortage are on the coast of Africa, some parts of the Middle East. So they have other crops besides just wheat, uh, maize and barley, which is used for uh, often for feeding livestock, and then s- sunflower oil. They're like 50% of the world's sunflower oil, which is pretty important oil in some places for cooking. And the UN estimates that uh, they are responsible for 12% of worldwide calories. So the blockade and the inability to move this grain is going to affect a lot of people and is starting to affect people right now. Um, They can't use the roads to get it out. Those are bombed. They can't use airplanes. And they just can't get those ships out because there are kind of the equivalent of landmines, sea mines that are around there and can blow up entire ships. Uh, So that's a piece of it. You know, there are other pieces impacting the potential global crisis, and that is, of course, COVID. That has made disruptions in distribution and also in labor around the world. And then climate change is also offering a lot of, um, well, not offering. Challenges, in, yeah. yeah. Imposing quite a few challenges. Um, but probably the biggest link between food security and what's happening in Ukraine is the inability to export fertilizer. Ukraine is a huge producer of fertilizer, and they are not going to be able to get that out. The futures markets on fertilizers are going crazy right now. Uh, producers are expecting much lower yields. Farmers in developing countries are uh, considering not farming at all because their cost of fertilizing uh, is sometimes five times as high now, and they can't make a profitable run. So if this year the problem is maybe the access uh, to food, getting it out of Ukraine and to the rest of the world, next year it might be uh, the actual production of food. So we could see uh, a pretty big depression in worldwide food production due to the inability to get the fertilizer that everybody's expecting. So is there a certain mix that people are using to feed the, you know, kids that are only getting one meal a day instead of three? Are they, are they figuring out how to make super, super foods, you know, less of it, but more intense? In Ukraine, or are we thinking worldwide? Well, that's worldwide, really. I mean, that's been happening in Africa forever, right? Or in places that are short on food. Well, I think what the UN has suggested for a while is if we could stop feeding the grain to livestock and have more vegetarian-based diets, that that's one way to really uh, distribute food more for humans. Mm -hmm. So that's one idea. I think we're back about talking for uh, a diet for a small planet. Right. 
Pamela, that's right up your alley, isn't it? And not in, it's my mantra. Yeah, not in a, I don't mean in a preachy way, but it's, it appeals to you. Well, our reliance on in the industrial animal crops has uh, created so many climate problems and health problems. Mm-hmm. So we need to eat more plants. Yeah. But it's not just, I mean, we're not just industrial in plants. We're industrial in corn. Romaine lettuce is industri- industrialized. Yes. You know, it's all coming from hot parts that ha- happen Monoculture, to have water. Monoculture, five-mile strips yeah. of broccoli when you drive down I-5. Right. Not an insect or pollinator can be seen. That's heavy. <laughs> and all of that fertilizer runoff, I mean, that's, and it's all connected. It's all connected. For that. Well, it is, uh, Danica Noble, uh, thank you for doing that, uh, and updating us on what we can be doing. Uh, again, if you want to help uh, Ukraine refugees, I know what we're doing as a company is World Central Kitchen. If you uh, look around, Pam, you I think you had a couple, or you had a couple uh, last week when you were talking about any other places you can give people to jump in and try and help still? Yeah, I would say if you live in or around Seattle, um, as always with Eric, our favorite recommendation is go to Aurora. And at 135th and Aurora um, is European Foods. And that is run by a Ukrainian immigrant family, uh, a mother and her son. So you go there, they've got uh, kind of a little store, but they also have a cafe. And yeah, someone's mom is going to cook you lunch or dinner if you're there. Right. It's really delicious. And, and they can connect you to uh, charities that are doing good work over there. Right at the register, they have a bunch of opportunities, yeah. and they're really good. plugged into the community here. Thank you, Danica Noble. Coming up in our second hour, uh, Kat Liu is here with her new book, Modern Asian Baking at Home. Pork shoulder belongs in your menu rotation for its myriad of marvelous uses. And then Father's Day, rub with love, food for thought, tasty trivia, right here on Cairo Radio 97.3 FM. Here we are, back in the Hot Stove Society kitchen. Thanks for hanging with us. We've got a full second hour coming your way. We're going to talk pork butt. And why do they call it a butt? And why do they call it a butt when it's actually a shoulder? Uh, So, yeah, we're going to talk about pork butt. We're going to have trivia. We're going to talk to Kat Liu here about her new book coming out, Modern Asian Baking at Home. Uh, There's so much to do. Uh, Michael Todd is sitting in for Pamela, who's under the weather, as our producer today. Uh, Loretta Douglas is sitting in for Terry Rotaro, who's under the weather, who's our host today. A show of guest appearances. And then there's me, the host with some. You're the hostess with the mostest. I'm the host with some. Uh, I'm Tom Douglas. uh, Happy to be with you. Uh, Chef owner of a few joints around town. Loretta, you you uh, find yourself as kind of the baker in our household. You and your mother are both like that side of the kitchen uh, more than I do and have become more proficient at it than I am, which is sad to say, but uh, but true. What's your favorite kind of thing to bake? Favorite thing to bake? Um, I love to make pie. Um, I like to make crust. I like filling. I enjoy pie personally more than cake, cake? so um, I love to make different pies. Well, we have Cat Lou here in the, in the house, uh, right here at the third mic in, in, the, in the hot stove kitchen. She's waving on YouTube right now. Uh, she's got a new book coming out called Modern Asian Baking at Home. Uh, how soon does it come out? Well, we hit the delays of the global shipping uh-huh. issue. So they're in New York, I think, right now in the harbor. And they'll, it'll come out end of July, hopefully. Lovely. 
I, I remember those days 25 <laughs> years ago when Seattle Kitchen was like, when is it going to make it to the, you know. Actual shelves. Yeah, we got to It was actually, our, it. My, our first copies were actually printed in New York, and then they moved it overseas for the for the 15th and 16th printing. Mm, subtle. Just humble that, brag there. That out there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, your new book is put together in a whole different way than when I put my books together. And I'd love to kind of go over that. In the next segment, we're going to jump into some recipes. But how did you get this thing started and finished, honestly? Because the start is one thing, but to finish a book is just as hard. It is. I think it's more of a magical experience. Mm-hmm. Because I started a group called Subtle Asian Baking. It's on my apron right here. <laughs> it is now the largest global network all about baking the Asian way. Mm -hmm. And we started with 100 of my closest friends in the group in May 2020, blew up to 60,000 members by December 2020. We were featured on Eater, and then Eater, um, that article got us a book deal Mm -hmm. from Quarto Books, right? And from there, I pulled my members and said, you know, what recipes excite you? What are our most viral trending recipes? And then I thought of all the recipes that I like to eat and bake and brings me comfort, like mm-hmm. the Japanese cheesecake, mochi miso brownies, things like that. And I asked my group members, do you like melon pond or do you like pineapple bread? Like, what do you want to see in this book? So from there, you know, I ad- adapted and got inspired by a, re- a lot of recipes from group members mm-hmm. and then rewrote all of the recipes, retested them, adapted them, changed up, you know, a lot of the ingredients and got 23 recipe testers to test from our group from around the world, right? 700 plus members wanted to be recipe testers. So it would be great for my second book. I already have a whole list (laughs) of recipe testers, right? So yeah, it was an amazing group effort, Mm -hmm. right? But of course, all the writing was done during ungodly hours because I was still working remotely as a physical therapist. And, you know, this was early COVID. So my son was at home. So I was doing homeschooling, doing the writing from 12 a.m. to 2 a.m. and then waking up 6 a.m. to 9 a.m. and then doing all the testing during the weekends. But it was a great experience and I would do it all over again. Mm-hmm. I kind of think of, uh, you know, all recipes uh, website has a ton of recipes and people look there for recipes, but they also comment on the recipes. Was it hard to take all the comments? Like when you sent out a recipe you thought was perfect and your testers came back and said, ah, I think you need to do this. Tom, I was so stressed out when they told me the recipes flopped because then we had to rewrite the entire thing, the mochi donuts. Oh, I had your own mochi donuts, uh-huh. and we loved them. Oh, thank you. I love the chewiness. And so making our own pondering mochi donuts, I had to retest a few times. I was watching a few YouTube videos on how they made it, and then I came up with a blended dough that was using high speed with a paddle attachment on the mixer. So, mm-hmm. yeah. It was tough and stressful, but then it worked out because I got to test the recipes over and over again, and it made me fall in love with food science. Mm-hmm. I find your book to be, and your whole process to be kind of such an encapsulation of what people have gone through in the last couple of years of the pandemic. The fact that you have these 23 recipe testers from all over the world, I'm assuming, um, doing this all virtually, and I'm sure texting and Facebook messaging and Zoom calling, you know, all of those things. It's just, you know, the world really changed in the last couple of years. And this book seems like such a, you know, culmination of all of that change and the way that it came about, I think is amazing. Absolutely. It was like, it is a COVID baby. And, you know, we all became very Zoom savvy. We became tech savvy. And the group and these recipe testers are all my friends now. And they all have kudos in the book. And it was just so wonderful. Like, like I said, it, 
pulled us through this really unprecedented, stressful time. You know, I made friends that I never thought I could, being so isolated in my home, you know, and building this global community. So it was, it was a good thing out of a really bad time. Mm-hmm. Now, the title obviously starts with the word modern. Um, are you suggesting that a lot of the Asian baking that was out there, like when you go down to our international district and you go into some of the Asian bakeries, are, they are really full of a lot of... Uh, buckets of icing, you know, bucket fruit fillings, bucket this and that that are put together. No offense. I mean, I grew up in a town of Newark, Delaware, where our local bakery did the exact same thing. So what have you changed to make it more current? So, Tom, I'll be very honest with you. We wanted it to be called subtle Asian baking. But due to market research, they said the word subtle doesn't sell. Mm -hmm. But now it's very funny. They want another book that's probably going to be called subtle Asian something. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Because, you know, if it's new, people are not as excited about it. But we actually do have a great name out there. And as to why we chose modern Asian baking, it's because it's not all traditional baking. So it's not all the traditional things that you have, like the dango or the mochi that you have from Japan. It has fusion things like the Basque cheesecake with mm-hmm. matcha and miso in it, right? And then you have your Japanese cheesecake, right? Cheesecake is more of a modern creation, I would say, even though there's been cheesecakes for centuries, right? But different kinds and then the mochi brownie too uh-huh. i love right. the phenomena of the jiggly cheesecake yeah it's so fun <laughs> the jiggly cheesecake what do you yeah mean? there's like this whole thing where if it's right and you pull it out your cheesecake should just like jiggle uh-huh. uh and kind of have a wobble and uh, well it's still warm yes but once it one, sets it sets right yeah this yeah. one is is exactly that one so if you look at our reel on our instagram this was the jiggly one but because I had to put it in the fridge because yeah. I don't want you guys to get sick. <laughs> I would have baked it Appreciate this morning. <laughs> yeah, but this is the jiggly cheesecake, but just set. Cat uh, Lou is here. She's going to stay with us for one more segment. We're going to get into some of the recipes in her new book, Modern Asian Baking at Home. And uh, look forward to hearing how many ways you can make mochi because it's <laughs> such a flexible ingredient uh, or process. Uh, on Cairo Radio, it's the Hot Stove Society Show, 97.3 FM. Welcome back to the Hot Stove Society Kitchen on Cairo. We're here with Kat Liu, the author of the new book coming out uh, probably by July, you said, Modern Asian Baking at Home. Uh, if people want to follow along with you and your, your process, especially for book number two, because it's so interesting, the crowdsourcing uh, that you're doing on your recipes, um, where do they go? What website? Yeah, we have modernasianbaking.com mm-hmm. for the website. We also have a group on Facebook called Subtle Asian Baking. Okay. And then on Instagram and TikTok, we're at subtleasian.baking. So my question, well, I'm going to start right away, because when I look at your website and things, mochi, 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 mochi comes up all over. And I think people, some, a lot of Americans still don't know about mochi. Uh, people like me, kind of, I remember the mochi when I was in Kyoto and where people are, you know, pounding it with hammers on big stones. And that, to me, was mochi and grilling it over a charcoal fire. You're using it in so many different ways, the process and the rice flour. Tell us some of your favorite mochi recipes. Yeah, so one of the easiest one is just putting the batter into the microwave. So mixing mochi, mochiko, or sweet glutinous rice flour with any kind of liquid. It could be melted yogurt. It could be ice cream. It could even be ube or a sweet potato and just mix it all in. You could add some tapioca starch. And then you just pop it into the microwave for 30-second bursts until it becomes this goopier, more translucent 
um, consistency, mm-hmm. and then it's ready. And then you add some oil, and you just, you just like knead it and mold it the way you want when it's not so hot to touch because you know it could b- burn your hand right out of the microwave, right? Right. So you could use the same batter, and then you could make it in the stove, right, until it becomes thick like a roux and thickens more and more. <clears throat> or you could blend everything in a blender, which I'm doing right now to make my mochi muffins and my mochi cakes. And I use this one batter to make mochi waffles, mochi pancakes, and it's just so versatile and easy. You could put mango in it, you could put blueberries, you could put really anything. So that's what I really love about you know making mochi too, this more modern way. Mm-hmm. So I'm not pounding it with you know the pounding things that people do in in Japan and so forth, but I'm just either using the paddle attachment of my mixer or using my own hands or just using a spatula. And is, are you suggesting that you have to make this? process that you just talked about to make genuine mochi because sometimes with the mochi mochinko flour that it's just adding the flour is really not much to it but you don't get that mochi texture if you don't do something more with it is that true well you still do get that mochi texture uh-huh. <clears throat> so with the mochi brownie that i have here yeah. it's very little mixing and then after like this was done yesterday after a day it actually cures and get chewier just like your donuts yeah just like the donuts yeah, yeah i always so. like them on day two more than day one right so. the viscoelasticity of you know this non-gluten flour mm-hmm. is what happens after it absorbs the liquid and so uh-huh. forth the whole pounding thing it's tradition it's authentic to who's making it right that's how it was made traditionally Right. Have I learned how to do that from the masters? No, I have not. Mm-hmm. So I can't say that my mochi is, you know, authentic Japanese mochi, but it will have that texture that you're looking for. Right. And then you also brought us today uh, a jiggly cheesecake. So tell us about that. It looks purple from here. Is that- <laughs> yeah, it's ube. <laughs> yes, it's ube. Ube powder. Yeah. yeah. So this recipe, the Japanese cotton cheesecake or the Japanese jiggly cheesecake is what brought me so much joy and love to baking the Asian way, because this is the recipe that I always wanted to perfect, and it took me three years to perfect it. Really? Yes, because oh it's God. leavened with meringue, right? So this one actually cracks as I changed the recipe a little bit. I used confectioner sugar in the egg whites when I was whipping it to stiff peaks instead of granulated sugar that I usually use. Um, and I put blueberries in the bottom, so it's like Uncle Tetsu or Uncle Ricaro in Japan who originated all those Japanese cheesecakes mm-hmm. right, in the 80s, I believe. So don't quote me on that. And then it's just hard to make because you have to perfect that mixing of that final batter. It has to be like a thick milkshake consistency, and then you pour it in, and then you have to bake it in the bain-marie, so water bath. And then the temperatures, you have to lower it, and then you have to crack it open a little bit. There's just so much so much going on with this cheesecake uh-huh. that could go wrong. A lot of people get a custard on the bottom because they didn't mix it well enough. So all the meringue rises up to the top, and it's so souffle. Some people pop it out of the oven, and they yell at me, and they say, how come mine collapse? <laughs> you know, you have to follow certain steps precisely to the T. For this particular one. Yeah. Many of the other recipes I saw look super simple. Yeah, this one is not a. Uh, this one is if you do it on your first try and it succeeds, that's magical. That's yeah. a miracle. <laughs> Don't be sad if it doesn't. I failed a lot of times, but it'll still be delicious. And once you get that jiggle, you're going to be obsessed. You're going to yeah. want to jiggle it all the time. <laughs> it's really, it's interesting. It's really caught on. I feel like it was, it originated in Japan, but when I was um, in Seoul, 
there was tons of shops selling, you know, slices, hot slices of the jiggly cheesecake. And I've seen it in Hong Kong, too. Yep. It's really all over. It's this awesome, fluffy, I think the cotton, the cottony name for it is like the perfect name. It is just that like fluffy, delicious. We texture. need to make this. Yeah. Tom, we need to sell this and yeah. make this. Are you looking at me? Yes. Yes, I'm, I'm all for it. Um, I mean, this is a work of art. To me, it almost, you say it cracked, but to me, because of the way the sides are kind of cracked also, it looks like this vintage, intentional vintage uh, yeah, treatment. Treatment. Like it's somebody would paint that on their wall that's kind of fake, the faux cracks and stuff. It's, it seems so perfect. That is so it's kind. Got, <laughs> it's got a lot of little gold leaf on it. And uh, so it's, it's super tasty. You, you have said that uh, you've called one of your recipes the queen of gluten-free milk bread. And milk bread is really popular these days. Uh, and uh, it's gluten-free is big for many people. Tell us about making milk bread. Milk bread is another love of mine. So I was always afraid of making bread. I actually made cookies and everything else before I made bread. I made French macarons before I made bread because I thought it would be so hard. But then once you get the elasticity going on, you know, once you knead it to the point of window painting that, that dough, again, I'm going to use this word, it's magical, just to bake bread, uh-huh. right? to understand the proteins and the gluten structures and so forth. I've actually perfected a milk bread that doesn't require any kneading or any tangjian or yudane method, so it doesn't need that water roux. Mm-hmm. It's all about fermentation, letting that dough rest in the refrigerator overnight up to 48 hours, and it comes out the same exact way as any of my milk breads that's been kneaded for like 20 plus minutes in the mm-hmm. stand mixer, right? And the gluten-free one, I call it the queen of gluten-free milk bread only because now I want to promote myself a little bit more. I've always been so demure, you know, being Asian American female, and I never promote myself. Uh-huh. So now I'm saying, you know, I, I'm a good recipe writer and I'm a good food writer, so why not give it a good name, right? Own it. <laughs> right? Love, I'm dying to make Empowering. that savory, uh, the miso savory milk bread rolls. Yes. Those look insane in the book. That's going to be the first thing I make, I think. Again, let's go back to the milk bread. We only have a minute. So if there's something else you want to get in there, a recipe that you want to share, uh, please. But the milk bread, like out of Fuji Bakery, I'm not sure if theirs is milk bread or if it's uh, if they have uh, gluten in theirs. Yes. They do. And uh, you're, you're just the one I'm looking at on here it has no gluten. No, yes, because I want to be inclusive in my recipes so uh-huh. that people who are vegan, who are gluten free, celiac, can all enjoy milk bread. Mm-hmm. That's a lot of people say that, you know, I miss milk bread the most now that I have celiac disease. Oh, really? That's interesting. And But you don't have any of those. You're just a thoughtful young lady. <laughs> I want to be more sustainable in my eating, so I'm trying to move towards more vegetarianism myself, uh-huh. but I respect whatever people eat and their choices. Okay. Anything else you want to get in about your new book? When Are you going to do a signing? Yeah. Are you going to come here and teach a class? I want to. Please, <laughs> hire me. I'm freelance right now. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yay, Yay. Thank you. I'll be at Book Larder August 4th. Okay. With um, World Spice Merchants. I'll be at World Spice Merchants in October, and I'll have a signing in New York City at UME Bookstore. Fun. Well, and you'll fun. be here at some point teaching Yay. a class at Hot Stove. Exactly. Excited. Thank Kat you. Kat Lewis, our... Uh, is our has been our guest modern asian baking at home is her is her book if you want to see what she looks like she's very very popular and very subtle (laughs) Uh, when we come back it's time to put a pork butt in the oven what the heck is a pork butt if it's not a butt on cairo radio it's the hot stove society show 97.3 fm
All right, it's the Hot Stove Society Show. We're back in it. We're in downtown Seattle at the Hotel Andra. If you're looking for a landmark, we're right across the street from the Dahlia Bakery and right above Lola at 4th and Virginia there. So uh, we're going to talk about pork butt. And Michael's, Michael has done some research to find <laughs> out why they call it pork butt, but it's not really the butt. That's right. It's really the shoulder. Yeah, so from our friends at SeriousEats.com, they say that in colonial New England, butchers packed inexpensive cuts of meat into large barrels called butts for storage and transportation. And that's where the name comes from, from those barrels. Hmm. Uh, and uh, the name just kind of stuck, so that's why they call it that. That's why you often see it called Boston butt. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Pork butt. Uh, and it's, uh, it's funny because the pork shoulder is often the, the hind leg where the ham is, the picnic. Uh, by the way, I'm Tom Douglas. I'm Loretta Douglas. And Loretta, I don't think I mentioned that you're the general counsel for our company. People are going to wonder why you're so articulate growing up in my household. But you actually went. To, <laughs> well, you actually went to school. I did get some education until I got sucked back in. At your own choice, by At the way. At my own choice. At your own choice. Uh, so we're going to talk about pork shoulder or pork butt or Boston butt or what I consider. Uh, if I call it best value cut in the meat case because it's often three bucks a pound now maybe four bucks a pound uh and it's uh it's hard to overcook Uh, it's just easy to work with but versatile yeah versatile it's intimidating though because it's often you see it in there in a three or four or five pound or even the whole butt which is more like between seven and ten pounds of a roast and people don't know what quite what to do with it so have you ever made it have you ever made a whole boston pork butt Probably not a whole, but I've uh, made like in that three to five in that pound chunk size. Range. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so when you see it, you'll find it two different ways in the grocery store. One is bone in, and one is boneless. And if you're buying the whole thing bone in, it's simply the blade bone from the shoulder of the pig. Uh, we have one in our in our own bodies, uh, the shoulder blade, and that's what that is. It's also often seen in grocery stores as country style pork ribs. Because oh, interesting. I yeah, didn't know that those were related. When you look at those, they're cut about an inch wide, and they're cut across the butt. And so you get a little bit of that blade bone in your country-style pork ribs. And some of your country-style pork ribs are boneless because the, the blade is just a small part of the big, the big uh, bone or the big roast. And some have the little bits of the blade bone in it. So that's what a country-style pork rib is. Uh, sometimes you'll see them slice super thin for uh, stir fries or of that nature. And uh, that's about most of the ways you're going to find them. When I buy a whole one, uh, I like to take the bone out myself just because I'm a cook. That's what's fun to me. But I often cut them, if I'm making them, say, for tacos, I often take a 7 to 10-pound pork butt and cut it into four pieces. And I rub the whole thing all the way around as those four pieces because why? It's just a way to get more seasoning into that. More crust. More crust. More crust on the outside of, because when I'm eating my tacos, I don't want just a bunch of inside meat. The same reason I don't love pulled pork in that way, because uh, the outside of the pork is the most flavorful seasoned part. And when you have pulled pork, you end up with a lot of the interior meat, which is fine. It's delicious. You and I have always differed that way. Like, I love shredded chicken, shredded pork, like meat like that. Uh-huh. And I love a good pulled pork sandwich whenever we would go get barbecue you were always straight for the ribs and i was yeah. straight for the but i don't mind a pork sandwich yeah. i i just will cut it and roast it in smaller chunks and then chop it so that every part of that sandwich has a bit of the outside in it so 
I happen to make a spice rub that goes deliciously on the pork butt, so I just I really lather it up with spice rub, and then I cook it low and slow. So between 300 and 325 for the whole roast, you really, <laughs> this is hard because you're such a weenie butt when it comes to any sort of fat, but you have to reincorporate the fat. When you roast the whole pork butt, you're, it, or even a chunk of it, it's going to have fat on the interior, and to, to kind of pull the meat off, get rid of the fat, and now you have this, right? No. You chop the whole thing up and you redistribute the fat so there's an equal amount of fat throughout the pork butt. If you want to think about it this way, when you buy a hamburger, it's, you can buy it lean, which is usually somewhere around like 90, 90, 90 yeah. or 90, yeah, 85 to 15% meat to fat. Or your regular burger is usually 80% or 75% meat to fat. What are they doing with the fat? They're redistributing yeah. it all the way around the ground meat, right? And that's all I'm saying to do, whether it's beef brisket or whether it's a pork shoulder or butt. Um, you want to redistribute that fat so that it's equal portions and it moistens the whole, the whole rather than only having the lean stuff mm-hmm. uh, to, to choose from. So I know that makes you twisted, but... You're going to have to get over that. Here's a young woman you. that's in the restaurant business that for the, the most of her life growing up, nothing on her plate could touch. Like if you had mashed potatoes over here, the steak would be six inches away on the other side of the plate. Just saying. I like my flavors separate. It's not I, that I, I don't eat everything on the plate. I just prefer to enjoy them one at a time. Yeah, we needed a 24-inch platter <laughs> to make her happy so that we could have everything on the outskirts and not run into each other. And that was the birth of the rainbow plate. Yeah, was- exactly. <laughs> exactly. Okay, so of the all the things I talked about, you like pulled pork the best. I like pork tacos the best. Yeah. And that's an easy thing to do, right? Because it's the same as pulled pork. I, I don't love pulled pork because it's too stringy for me. I like chopped pork. Yeah, you don't like when it gets fi- shredded too fine. Yeah. yeah. Or when it's overcooked and it gets mealy. Yeah. Uh, so I, But I like it chopped and uh, with a knife so that I don't have long strands of pork, which when you pull pork, essentially, you're supposed to use a couple of forks. Yeah, you use two forks. And, and you shred, shred it. Shred it, yeah. yeah. So that's just, you often see that in tamales or something. So there's a million ways to use this. Like the, the most versatile cut in the case just happens to be the best value in the case at the same time. So uh, pork tacos, uh, making a little tamale filling. Uh, if you've never made tamales, it's a great Saturday project uh, where you're going to make your masa and get it all set. And I use a ton of butter or, or uh, pork lard in my masa. But they take an hour to an hour and a half to steam. But you have to make the filling. Uh, there's there's just all sorts of fun things you can do with the pork when it comes to that. I know many people, this is going to make you twitchy, but um, many people will do their pork shoulder in the Instant Pot and do pressure cook it. If you are shredding it down for like pulled pork where you don't uh-huh. necessarily, people aren't used to getting that crust on it in that application, it goes pretty quick. Right. Um, and then you just shred and can add your sauce if you're feeding a crowd. Feeding a crowd. And that's also where, you know, um, David Chang got very well known at Mamafuku for all the different things he did. But he his bosom, where it's kind of like red pork, Chao Ching Chao, who's um, an instructor here and has the book uh, Chinese Soul Food. Uh, does a lot of that red pork in her in her cooking and in her menu lineup and always pork butt in that s- scenario. How about the Cubano? Super popular, right? Mm-hmm. 
That is the roasted pork with sliced ham. With ham, right? Right. Yeah. Uh, it's actually a Florida sandwich. It's not a Cuban sandwich, but it was uh, made popular in the Cuban community down there in Florida. I like the idea of a simple ragu with pork. You know, I think a lot of people are used to making like a pot of cut or shredded chicken that they then use kind of all week long um, in if they're meal prepping, you know, you can use it in a hundred different ways. Mm-hmm. And I think some people, like you say, see the pork in the case and are intimidated by that. But really you could make the exact same kind of neutral seasoned pork shoulder and keep it in, you know, Tuesday night you have it in pasta sauce and Wednesday night you have it in tacos and um, just use it all week long. Do you know where... Um one of the most popular dishes we've ever put on a, on a menu in our restaurants is at the Palace Kitchen, and we had the plein, mm-hmm. the little uh, tiny pinch raviolis. It's perfect and food. Martha used to braise her pork butt in milk for about four hours uh, on the bone. You know, it was just, just beautifully done. Uh, there'll never be another dish quite like it. Uh, but uh, charred pork, Reggiano Parmesan, and braised in milk, um, Really made a, a beautiful, beautiful pasta beautiful filling, pasta, ravioli yeah. filling, and uh, I miss her terribly. I've been trying to find Martha. I cannot find her anywhere. So, need our pasta. Well, not just need our pasta. But I need to see how she's doing. She worked with us for 25 plus yeah. years. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, pork pot pie. Uh, do a whole roasted pork with uh, black beans uh, or make a pork verde chili, you know, mm-hmm. where you use that kind of braised pork butt and make a little enchilada filling yeah with there's just a million yeah. ways to use this and it's uh it's one of those uh, kinds of ingredients that it's hard to mess up so get out there and give it a shot and it's and it's really the best priced value meat in the marketplace all right when we come back it's time for rub with love tasty trivia uh, i'm not sure if cat lou wants to jump in or if annie elmore is going to jump in or what's going on over here I'm looking at Kat. She's going to think about it over the break. On Cairo Radio, it's the Hot Stove Society Show, 97.3 FM. We are back. It's time to play Rub with Love Food for Thought Tasty Trivia right here on the Hot Stove Society Show. Food for Thought Tasty Trivia is brought to you by our very own Rub with Love Spice Blends and Sauces. As chefs, we are always looking for unique ways to build flavor and keep your pantry stocked spices as a valuable tool our rub with love brands have a wide range of flavor profiles so why not collect them all i think there's 19 now uh, we're available all around puget sound around the country five thousand different retail stores including hagen's stores with locations in bellingham and uh, woodenville and olympia b and e meats on queen anne and in des moines and also natural pantry in anchorage alaska all right uh the way this game is played, do you know how this game is played, Mike? I've listened to the show quite extensively, and I do know how the game is played. How is we, it played? We have five questions for each of our contestants today, and you'll be playing for our winner, who is Jolene. 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 Uh, Jolene. That's right. I mean, and I'm sure she's tired of hearing that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Dolly Parton is not tired of collecting royalties on that, though. I think that's all you can sing without having to pay them. Yeah. Uh, and then she'll get to build a custom three-pack from our Rub With Love wall. Um, but uh, each of the contestants will get five questions, and the loser will pay... Well, there's no shipping, but that's usually how today, it works. But they have to walk it over to Jolene. Yeah. 
You'll have uh, to uh, be Jolene's personal assistant. Cat Lou has decided to stay and uh, try her hand at our tasty trivia, uh, the author of Modern Asian Baking at Home. Uh, Loretta, you want to go first? Sure. Okay. All right, for Loretta. Just wipe your... everybody out before uh, <laughs> they get a chance. Name a famous father who named his daughter Apple. Chris Martin. That's right. The uh, singer, lead singer of the band Coldplay. Coldplay. That's right. Ding, ding, ding. Oh, I forgot to mention Becky Guzak wrote these questions. Okay. A, Is that a, a Becky good friend of our, question? of our hot stove and of the show? Yeah, thank you, Becky. Um, all right, question number two. In 1966, President Lyndon B. Johnson issued the first presidential proclamation honoring fathers, designating the third Sunday in June as Father's Day. What was a processed food that was invented that same year? Was it number one, cheese in a can, number two, instant oatmeal, number three, Doritos, or uh, number four, all of the above? All of the above. That's correct. It was all of the above. Wow. Uh, number three, it was the ancient Greek physician who is regarded as the father of modern Western medicine and was quoted, let thy food be thy medicine. <coughs> Let thy medicine be thy food. Sorry, that was the correct quote. Ancient Greek physician? Mm-hmm. And uh, possibly philosopher? Uh, You're an attorney. You should know this. That's Latin. <laughs> 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 I have no idea. It was Hippocrates. Hippocrates. Yeah. Um, uh, this quote, although thousands of years old, acknowledges the importance of healthy eating and how nutrients and various foods have healing properties. All right, question number four. If you are making dad a butter-basted ribeye, when do you start adding the butter? Three quarters of the way through. Sure, we'll give you that one. Yeah, that sounds good. (laughs) Uh, After you have formed the crust by heating the steaks with oil in a cast iron skillet, I'd say that's about three quarters of the way through. Oh, my goodness. Near the finishing process. You're as bad as Pamela. (laughs) You don't want your butter to burn, so. All right, question number five. Uh, What beverage do fathers drink in Germany on Men's Day? Men's Day. Hefeweizen. Hefeweizen is a beer, and that is the correct answer. In Germany, Father's Day is celebrated differently from other parts of the world. Monertag, or Men's Day, is celebrated by getting drunk with wagons of beer and indulging in regional food. Sounds like uh, When I went to Oktoberfest in in Munich, they made me drink a shot of peppermint schnapps in between each beer. (laughs) I have never never felt that way before. Okay, Kat, it's your turn. Are you ready? Yes. You got. You understand the game now? Yes. All right. All right, Kat. Loretta got four out of five. She's going to be hard to beat. Yep. Oh. <laughs> uh, all right. Father's Day begins with the letter F. What cooking <laughs> technique or term uh, begins with the letter F? Frying. Yep. Fry, fry is on the list. We got fry, flam, flambe, ferment, frost, foam, filet, fondue, and so many more. Okay, number two. Who has been named the father of American cooking? We'll uh, give you a little hint here. Tom Douglas has one of his awards, maybe. James Beard. That's correct. One? Several? (laughs) A couple? Uh, All right. Quickly moving on to number three. Uh, What herb is called the father of herbs? I'll give you a hint. It's also the name of a little rascal. That's not okay, a okay, alfalfa. okay. Look alfalfa, it. I heard alfalfa. Oh. <laughs> and that's correct. And that's All called right. the father of herbs? Uh, yeah, so I'm kidding. Alfalfa, uh, the leaves of the time. alfalfa have eight amino How appropriate acids. that her husband and the father of, well, I don't, I don't know that, but uh, it helped her with that. Well, I didn't cheat. <laughs> <laughs> that's right, she phoned a friend. Use the lifeline. 
Okay, uh, question number four. True or false, Julia Child's father was French? True. Unfortunately, that was false. false. John McWilliams Jr. was born and grew up in Illinois. All right, question number five. Can you make brownies or mochi brownies on a charcoal grill after you cook dad a steak? (laughs) Of course you can. That's right. Yes, sure. you can. After sure you're done you grilling dinner, prepare the brownies yeah. on the grill by adding a few more lumps of charcoal to maintain the grill temperature. Nice wow, job. another yeah. four out of five. That's a, that's a tie. This, four is, out of five. Uh, this is tough. It's not tough looking, sledding around here. Not looking good for you. Nope. <laughs> okay, Tom. When does a joke become a dad joke? When I tell it. Because it's always funny unless I tell it. That <laughs> unless. is a really good answer to that <laughs> question. <laughs> when it becomes apparent. Ah, that could have been a mom joke, too, though, so it's not really. Uh, there have been two sets of father-son presidents of the USA. Name them all. Both? Both sets? <laughs> yeah. Well, the Bushes, for sure. That's right. Yep. That's and one set. father-son, we'll say the uh, there's John Quincy Adams and the Adams family. Yeah, we'll give it to you. You got that. The John Adams and John Quincy Adams, yeah. and then George Bush, and then George Bush. George wow, Dub- that was yeah. brilliant. Brilliant. <laughs> I didn't even go to college. Uh, all right, dinner time for the parents who had the most children ever recorded was very hectic. How many children did they have? Ever recorded by a single set of parents. Yeah, how many? Yeah. I would say they had 27 children. Unfortunately, it is a little higher. The world record for having the most number of children officially recorded is 69. Mm. How appropriate. Holy. Holy, that is a lot of children. Uh, the wife gave birth to 16 pairs of twins, seven sets of triplets, and four sets of quadruplets. Wow. All right, question number four. Please name the two most popular types of pork ribs. Country-style pork ribs. St. Louis-style pork ribs. Baby-back pork ribs. Yeah, I think the I think they're all in there. Yeah. Spare ribs is probably one of those two. Yeah. All right, we'll give you that one. Ding, ding, St. Louis ding. or spare ribs. Okay, there you Just go. Just with the tips cut off. Uh, and then our last question, number five. What was the first solid food Loretta ate heartily? Mo poke, Dadu. <laughs> I knew that was coming. That was such a gimme. That was such a gimme. All right. That was actually her first sentence. Uh, well, in a tie for first, we have Loretta and Kat. And maybe Tom. <laughs> well, I got no respect. Congratulations. Well, you, didn't the first one. No, you didn't get the second one. So, yeah. No, you're, Congratulations you're to Jolene, our winner here, uh, one of the people who has sat through this amazing show. Jolene Michael, thank you so much. If you want to be part of the show, you can join the community on YouTube Live at Tom Douglas & Co. Or buy a ticket to join us here in the studio, like Jolene did, at HotStoveSociety.com. You're listening to us on Cairo Radio. The show is produced by today, Michael Todd and Pamela's Place, Sean McFadden, and our editor is Sean Don't Call Me Del Torre. And remember, if you miss any episode of our Hot Stove Society show on Cairo, you can listen via podcast. Just subscribe with your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. Jolene, 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 please don't take him just because you can.